0: This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So returning to the root, we find the meaning. Um, this is a, a line from a uh, sutra that we chant, uh, uh, a 3rd century, 6th century um, Chinese poem, their Song of Enlightenment, called the Ming. But it's been echoing around in my head as I've been sort of um, thinking about this talk today. So returning to the root, we find the meaning. Um, Last week, weekend and week, we had a a visiting teacher, Daigon Gator, um, who's a dear friend from the San Francisco Zen Center, Um, and his workshop was about embodiment in practice, Um, and I think his kind of special uh, perspective is also a lot about social justice and advocacy and how embodiment is crucial to that, how staying in our own body returning to our own body um, is how we can do difficult work and see difficult things um, without kind of maybe being worn down or overwhelmed by them, or maybe not as much. So I wanted to flesh out this embodiment a little bit more um, today in this talk. Um, and I think the, maybe the place to start is to go back to the Buddha's teaching him, himself um, on the four foundations of mindfulness. So this is a... Um, <laughs> my, my and Mako's teacher, Paul Holler, um, has been... He was the abbot of Zen Center for 11 years and has continued to lead practice periods even since he stepped down and um, he, he, so he often, you know, a couple times a year has a class and he always comes up with a nice blurb and a title for the class and they're, they're always changing and they, they seem, and yet what's in the class itself is always this, um, Four Foundations of mindfulness. So he keeps coming back to teaching the same thing, and you can call it different names, but... um, um, So that's had an impact on me as a sort of like, um, as a core teaching of Buddhism, and I think a core teaching of early Buddhism that um, corresponds well to Zen and the adaptations of Zen that evolved out of early Buddhism. Um, so, the four foundations of mindfulness are uh, mindfulness of the body, uh, mindfulness of feelings, maybe emotion, uh, mindfulness of mind, and mindfulness of mind objects. Um, and mind objects are pretty much what they sound like. It's like what we're thinking about, what we direct our attention to. And Mindfulness is a pretty popular term in our culture now. Um, <clears throat> and um, yeah, I wonder if, if people have, you know, a word or two that uh, evokes mindfulness or synonyms that they'd like to offer. Yeah. Uh, intentionality. Intentionality, yeah. Okay. Awareness. Awareness. Uprightness. Uprightness, yeah. D- directed attention. Directed attention. Where, where Noticing where Mm -hmm. You're directing your attention. Mm -hmm. Noticing the direction of our attention. Yeah. Care. Care. like that. Presence. Presence. Presence is kind of another way of saying embodied, I think, often. Yeah. And the being upright is the sort of Zen (coughs) spin on this early teaching for me. It's like... um, So I'll I'll talk a little bit about the the first of the four. uh, Mindfulness of body. Because I think this is the sort of vein that Zen really takes off in. Um, So for those that joined us... uh, a week ago, this past Friday, we um, a number of us went and saw the um, the movie. Um, the what is this called again? Big the Big And the dude abides. So the the description <laughs> of the four foundations of mindfulness I I thought was funny is um so the first mindfulness of the body the Buddha says a bhikkhu abides contemplating the body as a body. For the second, uh, a bhikkhu abides contemplating feelings as feelings. Um, he or she abides contemplating mind as mind. He or she abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects. Um, And I think there's already a sort of teaching in in just that short description that um, mindfulness involves kind of being in something, like being in my body and watching my body, Um, being with my mind and watching my mind. So it's not necessarily something we can do from afar. Um, And this is that, to me, this returning to the root. We're returning to the root we find the meaning <clears throat> mm. so the most sort of comprehensive description in the pali canon of the four, five, uh, of the four is there's a lot on mindfulness of body and especially mindfulness of breathing so breathing being aware of our breath um, be with our breath, is um, is part of the first foundation of being with this body. Um, and how bhikkhus is mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated, so that it is of great fruit and great benefit. Here a bhikkhu, or a monk, um, goes to the forest, or the root of a tree, or an empty, to an empty hut, sits down, having folded his legs crosswise, uh, sets his body erect, since being upright, and established mindfulness in front of him. Ever mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. So then there's a series of practice instructions, and any one of these we could kind of be with for days and weeks and years in our life. But he says, breathing in long, this monk understands I breathe in long. Or breathing out long, this monk understands I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he understands I breathe in short. Or breathing out short, he understands I breathe out short. He trains thus, I shall breathe in experiencing the whole body of breath. He trains thus, I shall breathe out experiencing the whole body of breath. He trains thus, I shall breathe in tranquilizing the bodily formation. He trains thus, I shall breathe out tranquilizing the bodily formation. He trains thus, I shall breathe in experiencing rapture. He trains thus, I shall breathe out experience, experiencing rapture. He trains thus, I shall breathe in experiencing pleasure. He trains thus, I shall breathe out experiencing pleasure. So it goes on... <laughs> um, ...experiencing the mental formations tranquilizing the mental formations so this tranquilizing or kind of soothing I I think is maybe a better word um, was a surprise to me as a Zen practitioner there's a kind of I think a lesson in Zen that um, we just sort of we're with our mind but we're not trying to manipulate it and so this is a subtle realm where Maybe there is some kind of manipulation of our experience in practice, or maybe there needs to be at certain times. Um, So tranquilizing the mind formations, soothing. um, In loving kindness practice, you know, we breathe in, you know, may I, um, may I know or experience happiness? and the root of happiness. May you experience happiness and the root of happiness. So this kind of practice, there were kind of, um, and it's tied to our breath and our breathing. So there's a sort of phrase that we say as we breathe in and another as we breathe out. is a totally legitimate form of practice. I I think I had some sort of doubt about it. Um, And it's about um, settling into our experience. Not changing our experience so much, but settling into this body, this kind of tool, the only tool I have to understand the world. So there's lots of two breath practices. I mean, this is from the Anapanasati Sutta. um, And I can direct you to where that is if you're interested. And there's a whole list of kind of practice instructions there. Um, But Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Buddhist Zen teacher, um, often teaches his students breathing exercises like, um, breathing in, uh, I feel calm. Breathing out, I smile. So what I learned from my own teacher, Paul, was um, like breathing in, uh, I receive the world, or I allow the world in. Um, breathing out, I let go. I release back into the world. So in a way, I think these things can help us stay with our breathing. It's like it's a way of bringing mindfulness to our breathing. If we don't get too carried away with the words. Um, And then I think Zen, at some point, Zen encourages us to drop even those directions or those intentions. So... Once I stop saying, you know, breathing in, I calm, breathing out, I smile. And then it's just breathing in and breathing out. You know, the sensation of that, the feeling of being a body in space, moving with this kind of life force. It's like, it's like the only way we really touch it is kind of noticing our breathing or feeling our heartbeat or something. Oh, there's something going on here that um, it's kind of beyond me. It's not. It's not totally in my control. It's um, it's the sort of arising of the the universe itself from within me. So one of my favorite teachers, um, a woman named Leslie James, at uh, who's the sort of um, Abbot, abbess or caretaker of Tassajara Zen Mountain Monastery, um, often in her talks, um, says that you know the number one vow we take when we when we come to practice, whether we realize it or not, um, is a is a kind of silent vow to stay with this body and mind. Again, because it's all we have. Um, but it's a profound vow. Um, there's so many reasons why we don't want to stay with this body mind. Um, so many ways we tr- kind of chase distraction disembodies, not the right word, but it's sort of like we tune out, we escape from our felt sense into the world of ideas and entertainment. So the act of Zazen, uh, you know, arriving in the Zendo, bowing, sitting down, finding our posture, it's like this enactment of I'm just going to be here with this thing. And I think in practice, that opens up into a kind of a world of fascination. What is this thing? Um, What are these thoughts and ideas that I have? so, I, the four foundations of mindfulness are, you know, early um, Buddhist teaching, the teachings of the Buddha in Bali. Um, and then I think, I sort of mentioned before that um, my understanding of Zen, there's some talk about breath practice or breathing practices in Zen, but it's not so emphasized. Um, I think Suzuki Roshi often would teach beginning students to count their breathing. So with each out-breath you just say silently, one, breathe in mindfully, and then as you're breathing out you say two, and you count up to ten and then you just start with one again. And it's a great practice at the beginning of practice to come to terms with um, our Of first awakening which is just how distracted we are um, that something as simple as counting from one to ten could be so hard you know without kind of being lost in the grocery list and the you know the conversation we had yesterday with our friend and and that's okay you know that's that's the ground for practice we get to see the ways we spin out and once we kind of notice it Oh, okay, it's time to start with one again. Okay, just one to ten. Uh, that's great practice. But I think in general, um, the teaching of Zen is more about our body and especially our posture. So there's, you know, very intricate details given in. Um, Zen instruction about posture. Um, And I think the intention is um, to develop mindfulness of body as the first foundation of mindfulness. That um, having such explicit instruction about um, posture is a way of kind of um, having us direct our attention to our body. In, in Zazen and in practice. Um, so, this is from Fukan Zazengi by um, uh, Dogen, who's the founder of Soto Zen. And it's um, Fukan Zazengi translates to something to like the universal recommendation of Zazen. So, Zazen is good for everybody, in Dogen's opinion. Um, it's universally good, it's a foundational practice. Um, and I'll just read a a few sentences but he says at the site of your regular sitting spread out thick matting and place a cushion above it sit either in the full lotus or half lotus position or in a chair or with a bench um He said, in the full lotus position, you first place your right foot on your left thigh and your left foot on your right thigh. In half lotus, you simply press your left foot against your right thigh. You should have your robes and belt loosely bound and arranged in order. Then place your right hand on your left leg and your left palm facing upward on the right palm, thumb tips touching. Thus, sit upright in correct bodily posture, neither inclining to the left nor to the right, neither leaning forward nor backward. Be sure your ears are on a plane with your shoulders and your nose in line with your navel. Place your tongue against the front front roof of your mouth with teeth and lips both shut. Your eyes should always remain open and you should breathe gently through your nose. Once you have adjusted your posture, take a deep breath. Inhale, exhale, rock your body right and left and settle into a steady and movable sitting position. So in many Zen temples we chant this, you know, every week or something. Um, uh, There's a famous golfer, Jack Nicholas, who, um, uh, as a child, I was sort of admiring of and um, was one of the greatest golfers of all time. And in the winter, he would take a few months off and just not play golf. And then in the spring, when he started to kind of get ready for the season of his professional life, he always started with the most basic aspects of the swing in golf. There's kind of as much detail about the swinging golf as there is uh, the posture in Zazen. (laughs) Um, But as a kind of young teenager, I was really moved by this is the best player in the world, and he every year returns to what what am I doing? What what at most basic? What am I doing? Like how do I hold my hands again? How do I hold the club? How do I stand? And I think that's, um, that's Dogen's message as well. It's like um, part of cultivating mindfulness mm-hmm. is that we, um, we kind of return to the instruction and allow it to kind of support us in a way. Oh right, my ears are supposed to be over my shoulders. And this is kind of okay activity for, uh, I mean, more than okay. This is a a kind of um, one form of what we're doing when we do zazen, is this kind of like tuning into our own body. Uh, What are the sensations of my thumbs as they touch? And uh, are they just sort of loosely touching? Have they fallen apart? You know, did I get distracted and kind of drift off? My squeezing my thumbs together um, and, and kind of um, stress or striving to, to kind of be here. So kind of allowing our mindfulness of body to sort of reflect something back, to teach us what is the state of my mind. Sometimes I don't even know, especially if my mind's spinning a lot. Then it's sort of like, oh, my body tells me that there's tension. My body tells me that I'm tuned out and distracted.. Um, <clears throat> so my first teacher um, sometimes people call them the, my, my root teacher um, uh, was a, a, is a person named Josho Pat Phelan, who's the Abbess at the Chapel Hills Zone Center. And when she was um, practicing at the San Francisco Zen Center in the 80s, um, she was um, she gave a lecture about Zazen posture. Um, and I just want to share a little bit of that with you. So she says, two characteristics of Zazen are being alert yet relaxed. There should be some energy in our in energy or effort in your zazen practice. This is an intentional activity, and it requires some effort, but not too much effort. If there is too much effort, you will become tense, and your zazen practice will be a strain. While sitting, you should be relaxed but awake. On the other hand, if you become too relaxed, your mind will become dull, and it will wander in its usual way, or you may fall asleep. We each need to find a balance between effort and ease in our zazen practice. In Zen mind, beginner's mind, Suzuki Roshi said, "The most important thing is taking the zazen posture. Oh, in taking the zazen posture, is to keep your spine straight. So whether you are lying down, sitting in a chair, or sitting on a cushion, try to keep a a straight back." Push in a little at the back of your waist, or arch your back a little, but just a little. You do not want to be sway-backed. And when you push in at the waist, if your back gets sore, that's too much pushing. Your, Your spine should be straight all the way up your back and neck through to the top of your head. And your head should be parallel to the ceiling, or if you like, parallel to the sky. Although we say to keep your back straight, we don't mean to force your back into an upright position as much as we mean to allow your back to find its own uprightness. I love that. So, Galen Godwin, the, um, abbess at the Houston Zen Center, um, connected me with a, uh, a modern, recent, um, kind of body practitioner or school or way of thinking called the Gokale method. Um, that was found, sort of started by this, um, a teacher named Esther Gokale, And I, um, I just watched their introductory video like maybe a week ago and, um, the next morning, it kind of, uh, it had some effect on my zazen. Um, and I was impressed by that. But her teaching is basically that um, our idea that our spine is a sort of S is a is a misperception or a kind of, um, uh, kind of problematic to actually um, good back health. So her... Um, adaptation is that the back should be a J. I think this means the J, like the sort of tail of the J, is that our hips do kind of move a little bit forward. So there's a light kind of arch in the low back, kind of maybe at the level of our sacrum. But everything above that should be a kind of straight line. Mm -hmm. And again, with this sort of parallelness to the sky pulling up. So I think of my own posture for a long time, I sat with this kind of deep bend in my low back and it was you know, painful over time or doing a retreat or something. So actually for me, it's been helpful to allow my, my kind of low back to kind of round almost a little bit. That's how I find this kind of straightness. And we all have to find it in our own body. And But this careful attention to our own body is um, kind of what's meant by all this instruction. Um, sometimes I think it's not even like that you exactly have to fulfill Dogen's description. And, and Josho talks about this in her talk that um, here's a kind of ideal, you know, Fukan Zazendi, we're supposed to do this. And then we get to um, try it out in our own body, in our own life, and what, our, what is this body capable of, you know? Some days it's not even capable of crossing its legs, and I have to sit in a chair or something. Um, <clears throat> but I think the point isn't to get to um, doing Dogen's description of zazen. That description is just a way to kind of—it's um, like almost overwhelming us with details, and all those details keep directing us back into the experience of our body. So I wanted to share with you a um, a poem from the um, Book of Serenity. Um, and it's one that I brought up in a talk recently, but I want to focus on a different aspect of it. So here's the case. This is um, case 54, Yunyan's Great Compassion. Uh, Yunyan asked Dao Wu, what does the Bodhisattva of Great Compassion do with so many hands and eyes? So the bodhisattva of great compassion is avalokiteshvara or kanam or kanzeam. Um, And bodhisattvas are kind of archetypes, kind of ideals of certain aspects or qualities of uh, a human being. Um, So avalokiteshvara embodies um, this... um, ability to hear and see and feel deeply um, everything that's happening in the world and especially suffering so the cries of the world um, and 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 Avalokiteshvara has is so adaptable like there are traditions and cultures that see Avalokiteshvara as male, and others that see her as female. Um, there are you know, lots of different kind of images or depictions of um, Avalokiteshvara. And, um, and there's two kind of, um, well there's, one conception of Kanzayan is that this hearer of the cries of the world, that if we're open to um, the suffering of others, um, somehow that's enough. Like, that's healing in itself, just to hear, just to be available for that. So that's sort of one conception of Avalokiteshvara. Another is that Avalokiteshvara has all these tools to, like, be active, engaged, and and get things done in the world in some way. There's... um, There's these um, thousand-armed statues of of, uh, Avalokiteshvara, each holding a different tool to kind of... um. And then in this koan, there's a particular depiction. um, So sometimes they say um, Avalokiteshvara is um, covered in ears or covered in eyes, meaning that... um, this, this great being is constantly hearing or constantly seeing the, the suffering and the difficulty of the world. Um, so again, the case is, uh, Yunyan asked Dao Wu, what does the Bodhisattva of great compassion do with so many hands and eyes? Dao Wu said, it's like someone reaching back for the pillow at night. Yunyan said, I understand. Dao said, How do you understand? Yunyan said, All over the body is hands and eyes. Dao said, You have said a lot there, but you only get 80%. He's <laughs> a good teacher that's like, you know, setting the bar ever higher. <laughs> You said a lot there, but you got only 80%. Yunyan said, what about you, elder brother? I guess they they were companions on the path. Um, Dao Wu said, throughout the body is hands and eyes. So it's a subtle difference. You know, um, Yunyan says all over the body is hands and eyes. Dawu says, "Throughout the body is hands and eyes." It's always hard to know what the the sort of meaning is in works of translation, you know. um, But to me, it was like what hit in um, that—that subtle difference—is this embodiment. It's this sort of actually being in the body of hands and eyes. Rather than sort of that body is covered with hands and eyes, it's like throughout the body. Um, I don't know if that comes through so clearly, but it. it, um, um, I think it ties together why it's important for us to return to the root, why it's important for us to return to the root to find the meaning. That it's not a selfless endeavor. It's not like, I just want to get to know me better, you know. Um, uh, That this act of returning and embodying, um, encouraging ourselves to stay with this body and mind as enough, is an act of compassion, is what connects us to other beings. So like in most um, koans, there's a kind of introduction and then the main case and some commentary and then there's a verse or a poem about the, the case. So I'm to share the, the poem or the verse um, about this sort of body of hands and eyes. It says, uh, one whole, emptiness pervading, crystal clear on all sides, Formlessly, selflessly, spring enters the pipes. Unstopped, unhindered, the moon traverses the sky. Pure jewel eyes, arms of virtues, all over the body. How does it compare to throughout the the body being it? The present hands and eyes reveal the whole works. The great function works in all ways. What is taboo? I'm not sure about that last (laughs) word. It's funny. I often find that in in the poem verses of these. There's like there's one line that's like, no, that shouldn't be there. It it might be a translation thing or it might be my own lack of understanding or something. I'm not sure what taboo means in that poem. But anyway, I'll share the poem again. One whole emptiness pervading, crystal clear on all sides, formlessly, selflessly, spring enters the pipes. Unstopped, unhindered, the moon traverses the sky. Pure jewel eyes, arms of virtue, all over the body. How does it compare to throughout the body being it? The present hands and eyes reveal the whole works. The great function works in all ways. the present hands and eyes. So that's maybe different than my idea of Avalokiteshvara or a statue somewhere, the present hands and eyes. Mm. Reveal the whole works. The great function works in all ways. So, the great function, you know, we could call it the universe, Buddha nature, um, lots of things, the unborn, maybe. Um, But the great function works in all ways. So, that includes through us. We are just the, the great function functioning these present hands and eyes. Um, So that's the value of embodiment to me. Um, It's a kind of giving over to um, being the activity of this great function. Maybe I've said enough or too much. Um, are there any questions or comments about anything? Yeah,
1: I just wondering if maybe that word taboo doesn't kind of I mean that in that usage, so hindrance, hindrances,
0: hindrance. like the th- a hindrance. Yeah, because it, I like that because earlier the, in the. What bu- was the comment? I couldn't hear. Um, the suggestion that possibly the word taboo in the last line of this poem has something to do with hindrance or blocking Um, because earlier in the poem it says formlessly selflessly spring enters the pipes unstopped unhindered the moon traverses the sky so given that that's true like where is the blockage where, what is taboo? I like that.
1: Yeah. I'm not sure how to this question, but. Um, so I, I think of practice, like uh, mm-hmm. right, and just practice. And, I, and then I think of um, some of these mindfulness exercises uh, as being a little different. Mm-hmm and and honest mm-hmm. practice. Like breath practices. Yeah, the breath practice, yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm just wondering whether to think of, of those. I mean, I see them as intimately connected, and I see how our Shifantaza must include mindfulness. But do, I, I could see, like, starting, and then maybe my mind is not, very settled, or having mm-hmm. trouble. Oh, I'll do, I'll do a mindfulness exercise mm-hmm. while I'm sitting and something mm-hmm. instead. And I can see it as sort of a distraction or something that could take my mind up to decide. Well, oh, mm-hmm. should I do a mindfulness thing? I just wondering <laughs> what <laughs> <laughs> your thought is about that. About these, this mindfulness, with, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, first I would just say yes. Like, mm-hmm. yes, that is that is practice. Um, and it's tricky, because the more we get involved in directing our experience, like I should be feeling this, so I'll do something to make myself feel this, um, we're already kind of, it's slightly um, violent. It's sort of, it's, it's already, there's an assumption there that it's not okay, mm-hmm. that I'm not okay, that reality's not okay. And I think any practice that we take up, we have to kind of constantly ask, is it time to put this down? You know, Can I give this practice up and just be here? Um, but I appreciate your, your comment in the, in the beginning because I think part of my um, desire to give this particular talk today is that I think the distinctions are important, and that as a Zen temple, that it's important that we're all kind of clear on, you know, what is the teaching of Zen, and what is the teaching of mindfulness or Buddhism or yoga, or, um, and it's not that they're mutually exclusive. It's not that they're um, better or better than or less than. It's a it's a kind of respectfulness to the embodiment of thousands of years of people kind of offering us this tradition to me um, that to appreciate that uh, I have to clarify their own their instruction in my own life. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's a subtle balance between expedient means. So this is the Buddhist language around um, how do we turn kind of suffering into enlightenment or how do we turn people from isolation into connection or something. Um, And there's lots of expedient means and part of wisdom or prajna and the development of prajna is that we start to see more clearly what might actually be helpful. Um, So there's expedient means on the one hand, and then there's kind of like shikantaza, like just being with reality, however it is. Um, It's almost uh, (laughs) that level of non-doing of not kind of changing or reacting to our own experience is almost unfathomable. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty radical <laughs> in our human experience. Um, but it's worth trying to find, how do I let go of all this doing, all this, even if it's expedient means, you know, how do I let go of like, my getting involved? because I think even expedient means are more successful in some way when, I'm, when it sort of comes from a place of not knowing, not doing. Okay, thank you all for your kind attention.